Good evening. Thank you. Thank you. All right, going okay there? Man, what a vocal bunch. <laughs> I just love the way this is all about dialogue and I share and you share. <laughs> I sit real awkwardly in silence. Thank you, Clint, uh, for reminding us of our time a couple of weeks ago, in which I guess uh, we did take a particular look at the history of the church. Uh, there are many ways you could attack that conversation, and there are all sorts of nuances and perspectives to consider. But I think, as we discussed last time, and if you weren't here, it's important for us, especially I think, thinking about what it doesn't mean to be the church in the 21st century and the kind of country we live in with the kind of history that we have. Um, I think Christians have to own their story, our story, our past, our tradition. Uh, not just so that we can say, yeah, that's ours, although I think that's part of it, but to recognize the ways in which um, some of that story has shaped our language, our stance towards uh, the world, which is often the kind of language Christians can use. Um, you know, we mentioned last time, I think, the the comparison between or the, the implication for taking the word crusade, which was used for um, the violent uh, intersection of uh, Christianity, uh, empire, and uh, a Christian-Muslim uh, war and a desire to sort of take back the holy lands for the Lord slash us, um, slash distract the people with a good holy war is always a good way to get the people going and... <laughs> have them avoid paying attention to issues at home. Um, and we see the implications of that kind of mentality on the calling of evangelism meetings, um, crusades, which is quite a common phrase, drawn from that history as if that's like a positive thing. <laughs> yeah. So um, when we're thinking about what is our stance, to you know, what is the what is the role of a church community, and in particular in this series, how do we belong in really meaningful ways to something that is um, that we really believe in, and that we believe can has the potential to contribute to human flourishing and wholeness in the world, without turning it into us versus them, um, without an in versus out uh, mentality, because often those us versus them, in versus out things help us to get a sense of belonging but in by playing to our fears rather than to perhaps some more positive things. So that's the kind of conversation we've been having so far. You all, you all down with that? Is it? It's true? Thank you, Andrew. So <laughs> some, some truth. I just, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, not too much, but a bit. I'm going to share a few thoughts this evening and then we're going to have some discussion as per usual. Um, and there are a few thoughts. A few years ago, I think actually at Edge, I shared a couple of things along the line of what we want to talk about tonight, but I think they relate particularly to our discussion. So, you know, if you are a regular um, Sunday morning Edge attender and have been for a number of years now, um, possibly, um, then some of you might remember this, but I'd love three volunteers. Can I have three volunteers? Andrew? Another? Dietrich? One more. 
Come out into the light, Andrew, where, people, where the people can see you. Uh, here, take a, take a little cup there. Dietrich, would you like a cup? You come into the light as well. Don't go to in the shade where I just got Andrew to move from. William? Andrew? Dietrich? What I'd love you to do for the fine people is take that cup and just, with a really good effort, just um, give a good spit into that cup there. <laughs> I had a feeling Andrew would get into this, actually. <laughs> Maybe not that much feeling, Andrew, but you know, just, just a good spit. Yeah. Okay. Are you okay? Have, oh, you've done it? You've done it? Have you done it already? Are you still working up to it? Oh, my gosh. Isn't it? Just, just give us a little one, Andrew. Just, we don't want to draw this out and have this be the entire evening. Okay, you've all got some spit in your cup? Has everyone seen that? Right, now what I'd love to invite you to do is to drink it. <laughs> if you can, if you can get it out of the bottom there, if you're up to it. Oh, is it? Oh, Andrew. No, can't do it? Oh, that was viscous. Thank you, Andrew. And you haven't done it? No. no. And Dietrich, you haven't done it? That's okay. I'm not going to force you to. But <laughs> All right. You can um, take your cup with you and don't leave it near me and take a seat. Thank you. Who felt good about that? Anyone? Uh, other than Andrew, obviously, enjoyed every second of it. Um, does anyone remember us doing this a few years ago? A couple of people. Um, this is a famous psychological experiment, uh, and it's an example of what's often uh, referred to as disgust psychology. Right now, I'm not a, a psychologist; I'm a kind of a theological guy by trade, you know, by discipline. Um, but I'm going to draw on a few thoughts from a psychologist slash theologian tonight to help us in our conversation. Um, generally speaking, when we're born. Uh, we're born without the ability to determine what's kind of good for us to take in and what's not good for us to take in, right? Has anyone had children? Who's had children? Anyone been a child? I feel like this is probably from a phase of our lives we're unlikely to remember ourselves. But if you've had children, you probably know this experience of a baby essentially trying to figure out what is, it, what is something by putting it in its mouth uh, and then over time figuring out what is it okay to, to take in and what is not okay to take in. And some of that might be learnt by the response to the thing that they try. And sometimes it'll be learnt by the social um, experience of people around them and people's reaction to what it is that they put into their mouth. Um, you'll often see, for example, a little, you know, a baby get just down in the dirt there, get that. You know, the old, uh, just get that in the mouth there. Have a good eat of that. Um, not knowing really at this point in time that this is something that they shouldn't be putting in their mouth. Probably if you gave a little baby like that a worm, yeah, just knock that back. Still figuring these things out, right? Um, but over time, what develops for us is a set of disgust reflexes which help us to determine kind of what's good to take in and what's not good to take in. Yeah? Okay. Um, 
And so in that sense, disgust psychology has to do with physical boundaries. It's like in versus out in that sense of our own bodies, right? So let's take the spit in the cup thing we were just doing there. Uh, the spit was inside their mouths all along, right? Other than Andrew who called it up from some deep, dark place. Um, <laughs> generally speaking, all of you will be aware right now, there is saliva in your mouth, yes? Unless you, you know, let's not explore the... Everybody's got some saliva in their mouth going on. So you've got some in there, uh, and it, you probably walk around most of the day without being really disgusted by that idea. Probably don't think about it all that much, right? Um, in fact, sometimes you think of something delicious and your mouth starts to water and really gets, gets the juices flowing, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so that's all right, it's in there, but then when it comes out, it actually, we, we change our language for it. So it changes from saliva to spit. And once it's out, then it becomes disgusting. When it was in, it was like normal and fine, but when it comes out, then it's disgusting. And so then drinking that, even though it was in your mouth maybe 20 seconds earlier, right, has now become something really disgusting for most people. Not for everyone, uh, but for most people. They have kind of, and, and the interesting thing about this is that there's a visceral response to it, isn't it? Like so all of, well, a number of you were like, oh, not having a good time, Emma, down there. Um, many of you have this kind of, as, as do I, this kind of um, instinctive response to the disgustingness of the spit in the cup and especially then in the drinking of that uh, into your body, right? Yeah? Um, so when it's inside us, it's normal. When it's outside of us, it becomes disgusting in this kind of case. Um, and... The other thing that happens here is this is not really a rational process for most of us because it's actually a, it's a reflex that we've learned to try and keep ourselves safe in some kind of way because we've learned what's kind of okay to take in and what's not okay to take in. That's not to say that everything we're disgusted by is actually genuinely harmful to us, but when that reflex triggers, that's what it's trying to do for us. It's trying to protect us from things that might be unsafe for us to take into our body, right? Um, so if you take, uh, for example, let's, take, let's say you took a cockroach. I remember the, the urban legends always used to circulate. I don't know if they still do. It used to be a thing back in the 90s about some guy who went to McDonald's and his thick shake was really lumpy and <laughs> then he, he managed to, you know, really suck it up the straw and eventually when that lump of ice cream got into his mouth, it was a cockroach or something, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure if that story is true, but it used to circulate. It was, you know, these were the crazy, these were the crazy goings on of the 90s. Um, if, but if we were to take a glass of juice, let's say, uh, and we were to just put a cockroach in there, give it a little stir, but we can take that cockroach out and, and serve it to you. Uh, not many of you would drink the juice. Am I correct? Correct. If you got that served to you at a restaurant, uh, you'd probably um, have a negative response towards that. Actually, I remember going to, there was, used to be a place called One Red Dog in Ponsonby, if any of you are old enough to remember such a place. And my friend got a fingernail, a whole fingernail in their spirulina. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. So they came and uh, replaced it and gave her another one and then charged her for both. Um, <laughs> 
But let's say we take a cockroach or a fingernail or, you know, the disgusting thing of your choice and we stir it around in there, take it out and give it to you. You don't want to drink it. It's been contaminated in some kind of way. But experiments show that if you take that juice and then you filter it and then you treat it, maybe you heat it and then you cool it and you purify it um, and it ends up more pure than the juice was before it had the cockroach in it. In fact, it ends up more pure than most tap water but you give it back to the person and they know that a cockroach has been in there, they still won't drink the juice, right? Even though logically you can be told the juice has been purified and cleansed, I know that the cockroach has been in there, therefore I don't want to consume it. That's a, it's this kind of typical response, right? You all with, with me, following along? Uh, so there's this, um, this kind of, it's not a rational response all the time because it's this instinctive disgust reflex that makes us go, Ah, I don't want that in me. Um, so you might think this is a strange place to start, but we'll see. Uh, so here's a book called Unclean by a guy called Richard Beck, who I mentioned before, psychologist and, and does some theology as well. He's interested in some ways as a psychologist and not just in what we believe, and, but in why we believe it, and not just why we believe it as in it's in the Bible or not, but why we believe it in terms of why we want to believe or find ourselves uh, believing certain things instinctively and being drawn into certain ideas and maybe not to other ideas and so on and how they function for us at the level of our psychology, not just, well, this is what we believe. Yeah? Um, now, what psychologists notice about this disgust reflex, and if you're a, psychology, if you, if you're a psychologist or studying that, don't judge me, I'm dabbling. Um, but what they tell us is that this kind of disgust reflex to do with boundaries, to do with in versus out, can be extended for us um, beyond the kind of personal ingest ingesting of food and drink into kind of social domains and even moral and spiritual communities. Not just religious communities, but that kind of reflex can not just function in terms of an in-out in my own body, but an in-out uh, reflex in relation to our social groupings. Yeah? I'll say that, and then we'll see if, if that holds up over time. Um, and so what we find in, in, human, in the human experience is this continual attempt to try and define who is kind of clean versus unclean, for example. That kind of language crops up a lot in human societies. Um, who is pure, who is dirty. Uh, the particular religious language maybe of some traditions in, in certain understandings of the word is what is, who is holy and who is sinful, right? Yeah? Okay. Um, and so if our community is like an extension of our body in some kind of way, it's just a train, no need for panic. Um, if our... This is our body and we're protecting that, but then we have an inbuilt impulse to protect and preserve our community. Long train. Longer than average, I would have thought. Um, so beyond our body to extend to the community, um, we can deem maybe a person or a group of people 
to somehow be unclean or impure in some kind of way. We want to, uh, like the, the, the spit that has now become disgusting, we want to push it, or in this case them, away from us so that we're not close to the thing that's triggering that kind of impulse or reflex in us. Um, and so psychologically, it's the same reflex as the disgust reflex, but often we come up with other language to try and describe what it is that we're doing there. But often it's not rational. Often it's this innate instinctive response towards a person, a group of people, um, who we've decided are for whatever reason unclean or not. Linda was talking this morning, if you were around, about the leper, for example, in the, in, in the Gospels that Jesus reaches out and touches and heals. And obviously there's a disease situation there, but that has then uh, been uh, expanded into an, a whole category of being unclean and therefore unable to participate in community in any kind of meaningful way. So the, the story goes in the first century, they would have to you know, ring their bell and say unclean, unclean as they, as they walked around. Um, and some of these categories probably did develop in ancient societies as a way of trying to um, protect or preserve health uh, and well-being of a community. It's just that sometimes they also get extended in very unhelpful ways. Um, okay, so there are four principles of contagion that we talk about when we, when we talk about something that triggers our disgust reflex, or not just triggers it, but that are related to our disgust reflex. So we're going to talk about those, uh, and especially in the way in which they get extended into the moral and religious worlds that we live in. Uh, and then we are going to come back around and, and think about this in terms of um, a helpful theological response to it. So one is this idea of contact. So contempt, if we're talking about language of purity, especially, then obviously we don't want to come into contact with something that is impure, unclean in some kind of way, because then we will get um, tainted by it in some kind of way. So think about um, this kind of situation. This is Montgomery, um, pre-civil rights era. Uh, a drinking fountain for the white people, and then a drinking fountain for the not white, for the coloured in this particular situation. Um, the concern here being that somehow this group of people has been deemed as uh, contaminated, as unclean, as expelled from us. And so we don't even want to come into contact with things that they've come into contact with, including something like a drinking fountain. Yeah? So it's, quite, it's not rational at all, is it? No. But it's the same kind of innate reflex of disgust now being applied to whole groups of people, not just towards spit. Um, so you've got contact. You've also got a sense of dose insensitivity. So this kind of reflex is very all or nothing. So um, like the cockroach thing, even though we've cleaned and purified and filtered that juice, um, it's still contaminated to us and therefore um, we want to repel it. Um, and so this is where things can become quite illogical. Think about, for example, let's say there was a known um, poison that is in the environment that has been detected in the soil of a children's playground. 
um, what you'd probably find if that came to light is that people were a bit upset about the poison in the soil. Um, probably, yes? Yeah. Um, but once that comes to light, even if you were to reduce the level of that poison down below um, dangerous or harmful levels, which can be proven scientifically, it might even be now below the level that you would typically find inside your own backyard. It's just you haven't tested your backyard to know that there's, it's there, but they might be able to tell you that. Still, you're probably not going to find a great social support network for what is the level of poison in the kids' soil at the playground that we're comfortable with. Uh, are we comfortable with this level of poison or are we comfortable? Most people are going to say we're not comfortable with the poison in the playground, right? Uh, so there's this all or nothing response to it. And I'm not suggesting we should have poison in children's playgrounds. But that uh, even if we were to be told that it is at entirely safe levels and even safer than many other spaces in which you find yourself during the day, uh, we've got an all or nothing response towards this. And so therefore, uh, it's very binary um, all or nothing. Pure, I mean, language of purity in that sense is very all or nothing, right? Pure, but once something is slightly tainted, then it's impure. It can't be pure. How much um, contamination does something need to stop being pure? Just a drop. Yes, right? Uh, okay, so we've got coming into contact with, we've got this dose insensitivity. So it's very all or nothing. We've also got this sense of permanence. Uh, so things that are spoiled are often unable to be regained and to be reconsidered as pure or clean or in or okay. Uh, and so often once something's been contaminated, it's now forever contaminated in some kind of way. Uh, cockroach in the juice, again. Uh, and also negative dominance, which is that bud, bad, bud, bad, bad spoils the good. Good doesn't spoil the bad. You know, I remember when I was in youth, <laughs> I remember when, you know, one of those stories was always going to come along. Uh, youth group, back in the day, the example was always uh, stand on a chair. Does anyone remember the standing on the chair youth group example? Laura, you do. Um, and you try and pull your friend up onto the chair and they try and pull you down off the chair and see who wins. And what you find is the person on the ground can always pull you off the chair. You can't pull them up, you know, which tells her you shouldn't hang out with anybody uh, who's naughty. That's what that tells you because they will pull you down. Um, nobody told Jesus. So uh, the bad always – you never have like, oh, we've got a bucket of cockroach juice – but if we just put a drop of delicious juice in there, that'll tidy things up and everyone will love it. Like it doesn't work that way around, you know. And the same thing kind of happens in terms of this, that the, the negative always dominates the positive um, because pure is 100%. And so as soon as that, again, as soon as that's touched, then, then things are impure. All right. You with me? Great. So let's talk about the Bible and the Lord. Uh, and the world in which Jesus lives in particular in the New Testament. So one of the things that really upsets the religious leaders at the time, who function very much in a world built on this kind of 
way of thinking about God and even way of thinking about holiness and that language which was so important to the Jewish tradition. Um, one of the things that really upsets them and troubles them about Jesus is he keeps crossing these boundary markers that are supposed to determine who is out and unclean and impure and who is in and okay and we're allowed to hang out with. Uh, so Jesus, the classic stories of him eating with the wrong kinds of people, uh, of him coming into physical contact with, with those with leprosy that we're talking about before, uh, out the woman at a well in Samaria where he's chatting with a, a woman who has had a difficult life and they're talking alone. Didn't follow the Billy Graham rule. Um, and, and so Jesus is constantly crossing these um, social boundaries that have been set up and use very much this language. Even the language of sinners is used a lot in the New Testament, right? Uh, it's almost used in inverted commas because there are always these people that are the sinners. Even though the New Testament also invites us to consider this fact that everybody has some things to deal with, there are always these people that are labelled as the sinners, and Jesus would always be eating with the sinners. Uh, one of the ways of labelling these people as not in but out, um, not pure like us, not clean like us. Um, so even the language, the tale of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, if you remember there's two people, a Levite and a priest, who walk past the beaten man on the side of the road because to come into contact with him in some kind of way would damage their purity. Coming into contact, even though it would be a really good deed, it would in some way make them unclean to stop and help this man who's bleeding um, and dirty. Uh, and so they pass on by. Uh, and Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan partly as a way of resisting that way of being in the world. Um, and I mean, one of the reasons that the, the religious leaders at that time are convinced that keeping these boundaries strong is one of the ways in which we are going to please God and therefore God will come and liberate us. Because they look back at their own history and they say, we didn't stay pure enough and that's why everything went bad. So we've got to stay as pure as possible so that God will be pleased with us and then he will send us a rescuer or a deliverer of some kind. Um, and the irony, I guess, of that particular story is that uh, Jesus then is rejected by them as being any, in any way that kind of figure for them because he doesn't, they're worried every time he gets these large groups of people following him and he keeps crossing all of these purity boundaries that he's going to ruin everything. And then if he ruins everything, God's not going to be pleased and that's going to set us back for however long. And so Jesus is ruining everything and upsetting God. Yeah? Okay. Um, in many ways, some of what's happening here is, is a whole argument coming to a, to a head that's been going on really throughout the Old Testament because the Old Testament is not consistent on this particular issue. And if you read uh, brilliant Old Testament scholars, maybe uh, Walter Brueggemann and others, they'll tell you that the Old Testament presents a multitude of perspectives. It's a conversation about God and about the history of this people and their, 
figuring out of this God. And at times there is some kind of argument and debate going on, uh, sometimes between different uh, perspectives, different leaders, different prophets, even who are offering alternative viewpoints. Um, for example, some say we must, res- we must keep out the foreigners from our community at all costs, and others saying, no, we must welcome them in. Uh, even after they return to Jerusalem, after, their ex- after Babylon comes in and destroys them and they, all get, they get scattered, but then they return and they rebuild. Um, and you read the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and others, you can see these actual comp- competing viewpoints. One group of people saying, if we're going to rebuild this city, we've got to make it as pure as possible, so keep all the uh, filthy, unclean, non-Jewish people out. And others saying, if we're going to rebuild the city and be the people of God, we must be people who welcome them in. Uh, so there's this conversation going on, and it really comes to a conversation of what is God like? Uh, and even what does it mean to, for God to be holy and for us to be uh, following or endeavouring to be a kind of holy people, which is, is some of the language that Scripture uses. So... Um, there's this argument between holiness as exclusion to maintain our purity versus holiness as a love that, that draws in. Um, and when Jesus starts uh, cruising around and talking, uh, cruising the streets of Israel in the first century, he consistently seems to land on one side of that argument, which is to say that holiness looks like love and a drawing in rather than a repelling and excluding out. Um, Does that make sense? So if we read this story, for example, this is one of the eating with the sinners stories. Um, Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house and many tax collectors and sinners come and eat with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can see them trying to figure out how can this be some kind of religious teacher, rabbi, prophet um, of Israel Israel, uh, if he's eating with the wrong kinds of people, he's crossing those purity lines. And as we've mentioned, I think, a number of times, to eat with people in the first century in Jewish culture was an act of embrace. It was an act of inclusion and drawing in. Uh, So on hearing this, Jesus, who's the great overhearer, uh, says, it is not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick, but go and learn what this means. (laughs) Which is a little, um, I like it, Jesus is a little testy. Uh, Go away and learn what this means. And here he quotes uh, the prophet Hosea and says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And again, here's this implication of this Old Testament conversation that's been going on that's continuing now into the first century. Uh, What does God desire from us? Is it for us to be merciful or is it for us to maintain uh, this exclusionary holiness thing by sacrificing and, and spilling blood to ensure that God is okay with our purity? Yeah? Okay. Uh, so one of the things, uh, and Miroslav Volf talks a lot about this in his um, book, Exclusion and Embrace. Um, one of the things that Jesus does, and I think this is one of the most profound things that Jesus consistently does, is call the thing 
that they saw as being the most holy and religious thing to do as being the sin that he was most um, upset with. So the thing which they saw as one of their most important holy and religious acts, which is to keep out the impure and unclean, Jesus kept naming that thing as the problem. That thing was the sin that he kept confronting. Not the only thing, obviously, he confronts, but one of the things he keeps confronting over and over again in these different situations and scenarios. Um, so, um, where shall I go from here? I shall, I shall do this. One of the things that I think comes up in the Jesus story is this idea that for Jesus, love, at least a part of what love is, is about crossing the boundaries that we are not supposed to transgress in our relationships with people who have been pushed outside of uh, the social religious community for whatever reason. Um, so let's return to the saliva example for a moment. Um, the saliva in our mouth is fine. Uh, other people's saliva, generally not so good. Um, generally speaking, right? Um, some of you might be kind of sheer chewing gum and lollipops kind of people, but most people are, are not. I reckon Andrew probably would be totally fine with sharing a, a lollipop. Fruit, but maybe a fruit burst. You have half and then I'll have half, you know. Um, but there are instances where we transgress that particular thing, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so much saliva that they are drenched. Um, no, it's also raining. It's also raining. If you haven't seen the film, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so when it comes to acts of, let's say for, for this example, let's, let's say this is, I know that kissing is not always love, um, but in this case, let's call it that. Um, at least there are certain conditions in which now I am willing to transgress a boundary that I normally wouldn't. And so what we find is we don't generally go around with open mouth, you know, pashing <laughs> just when we greet one another, you know? We don't sort of gather around, so lovely to see you. Give me a moment, you know, um, because that would be a bit gross and, and generally creepy and weird. Uh, and then we would find ourselves in the news. Um, right? This is, this is not generally the way we behave towards most people. But sometimes, for some people, if we've decided that there's something going on in us for them, we are quite happy now to transgress a boundary that normally would be disgusting to us. Yes? Now, we could take the fluid exchange imagery and continue and say that in the ultimate act, therefore, of um, one of the, not, not the ultimate act, that's maybe overselling it a little bit, one of the ultimate acts of people sharing love with one another involves fluid exchange of various kinds. <laughs> not something but we, that we normally talk about in public settings because actually, if you talk about it like this, with the lights on, no music going, and a whole group of people, it seems a much more gross than it, than it might otherwise. So, when people... <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so when, when people are, um, have got a particular kind of reason, often associated with, let's say, emotion, desire, or even love, they are willing to step past certain boundaries that otherwise they, they would find disgusting, actually. Yeah? <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to push that quite so far, but we did. Um, okay, so love then is involved, or we could we could make the suggestion that love is involved in this um, reaching out beyond these boundaries that tend to exclude us from one another. And so they can happen in very intimate settings, but also in a social sense. What does it mean to be a community of people who love? It might look like reaching past the boundaries that we typically use to exclude and, and include and, and say who's in and out and who's unclean and who's clean. Still with me? I'm sorry about that illustration earlier. But you look like a bunch of grown-up people who can cope with that. So Here we see this really, really clearly in the story of Peter in Acts chapter 10. So here we've got the spread of the church. We talked a little bit about the church last week time and how it began as this Jewish group, but then in Acts 10 in particular is the start of it becoming an inclusive group that is able to include non-Jewish people, in this case Gentiles. Now there were three kinds of Gentiles. Um, there were um, proselytes, God-fearers and pagans, right? So your proselytes are your Gentiles who are willing to be circumcised to join the Jewish community. Um, so if you were, and it's obviously a very you know men dominant story, isn't it? Um, but uh, some Gentiles would decide they believed in the Jewish God, but actually convert to, Judea, to Judaism. But to do so, they needed to actually go through the full. Uh, not just religious conversion, but physical conversion in that sense, um, to become a part of the covenantal people. But then you had the God-fearers, who were the people who believed in the Jewish God, but who weren't circumcised. And they were people who you're like, oh yeah, they've heard about this God, but we're not allowed to eat with them or engage with them or have them in our homes or go to their homes in any kind of way because they are still unclean. They're still um, outside of us. And then pagans are much worse because then there's a whole other situation there. So... Um, Cornelius in this story is like is is likely a God fearer, so he believes in or is at least interested in the Jewish God, but he's not a um, he hasn't gone through the process of converting to the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. So Peter, um, here he is. He's a good Jewish man who follows Jesus, and um, he goes up on the roof to pray, and he gets hungry. And want something to eat. So here we very much see the in-out food metaphor being applied to the social in-out um, reality. Uh, so he sees heaven opened in this trance and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners and it contains all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Again, here in the Jewish culture, all of these foods that are designated as clean or unclean. Can I eat this or can I not eat this for all these various reasons? And so Peter's like, no, I, 
I can't eat that which God has called unclean, even if God is telling me to eat it. Um, again, not a rational response in that sense, but this instinctive response, no, this is unclean, I can't take this in. Uh, and God speaks again, well, the voice does, but the fact that he says Lord tells you Peter's got an idea of who's speaking. Uh, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then this happens three times and then the sheet gets taken back, which, you know, God's nothing if not a tidier. So uh, Peter's sitting there then wondering, what is this about? And then some men come from Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and invite him uh, to come. uh, And God says to Peter, you must not hesitate, you must go with them. And so Peter makes this act of crossing the boundary that he should not cross according to the laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness uh, because God reveals to him in this trance-like experience that uh, there's something much bigger going on than all of those rules of clean and unclean and inverses out and the social exclusion that had been applied to the Gentile people. And so Peter goes into the home of Cornelius, which he shouldn't do as a good Jewish man in the first century, and he shares with them and they have this experience of, of the Spirit. That, you know, and you can see Peter's still probably a bit reluctant because it just happens spontaneously. Uh, he doesn't offer to pray for them or do an altar call or anything. But they just have this experience. And so everyone goes, well, if God's into it, I guess we've got to go with it. And of course, there's all sorts of controversy in the following chapters, if you read through in the book of Acts, as people are trying to figure out, is this all right? Is this not all right? Is this legit? Is this not legit? Because these people are not supposed to be in but now God's saying that it's all right. This seems very confusing. Um, because even at this point in the story, they're still not seeing that love involves the crossing of these boundaries to draw in and to include and to embrace. You all right? Is this a fair whack of things to think about? Um, so what we're going to do in the second half of today, because I think we probably just need to like have a little pause, few deep breaths, maybe a glass of water, clean, clean, very clean water from the back, no poison. And um, we're going to come back in, in just a couple of minutes' time and have some discussion around what does this actually mean, what are some of the implications, how do we negotiate what this means for us and what it means to be holy and loving, holy as loving. All right? Short break, then we'll be back. So what I'd love us to do now is to start to explore what is this interesting conversation, fascinating, absorbing, compelling. Um, What does it have to do with us now? What does it have to do with our faith, with our church community, with what it means to live in the world? Um, So I want to make just a a couple of observations and give us some questions to discuss. Uh, So perhaps we'll start here. I wonder... um, Sometimes whether Christians have been trained, um, I feel like sometimes we've missed uh, part of what Jesus was trying to do on this particular issue. Uh, And rather than seeing that Jesus was helping us to see, so for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he talks about it in the context of the way in which God loves enemies. And so perfection for Jesus in that 
instance is loving people who don't love you back, loving your enemies. Um, and I oft, I grew up, and, oh, I grew up stories, but I, you know, my kind of experience of Christianity in many respects was if we were to try and be perfect like God is perfect, then I've got to work really hard at making sure I get this right. Um, so holiness and perfection and purity and all of that language was not defined by love and a drawing in and an inclusion, but trying to be avoid contamination. And so for many people, and I think that the thing about this is that it doesn't just impact those who grew up in the church the whole time, but many people's concepts of Christianity, even when they've absorbed it from other places and then find their way into the church somehow at some point, have instinctively got that kind of framework at play and what does it mean to perhaps be a Christian or something, or be religious in some kind of way. And so even though the story of the grace of Jesus is kind of like, this is the way it typically goes, you're really unclean and impure, but Jesus isn't. And so when God looks at you, if you pray the prayer, God doesn't see you, he sees Jesus, and so he's okay with you. Um, and while that might be sort of told as a real grace message, it's kind of, it's got a, it's got a kicker. It's got like a sting in the tail, which is for many people, their whole spirituality and their spiritual life is about um, essentially trying to um, stay pure, to push away everything that might contaminate or compromise. Uh, part of the problem with that is that you can't do it. It's impossible to do if you think about it in those kinds of terms. And so I think what we have in a lot of church communities is people trying to pretend that that stuff's not there <laughs> because the existence of that is associated with a feeling of shame and impurity and anxiety or whatever language we want to call that that people have internalized and then they're like I don't want to see that so I'm going to I'm just going to try and not let anyone be exposed to that part of me uh, and to make sure that I behave and, and appear in, in ways that are approved or that appear clean and pure and, and wonderful. Yeah? So let's ask this question. What might be the social consequences of churches filled with people trying to f avoid the fact that they feel impure? Okay, so, hmm? yes, we're going to discuss in our groups, Laura. Um, so with the people that you're sitting with, um, have a crack at talking about that question. Rose, Rose is shifting groups. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Oh, I see, not enough bowls of, yeah, goods. Um, so yes, have a discussion of this question, interpret it however you want to. Um, but essentially, what are the kind of social consequences of, of that experience for people who are feeling like they're having to try and avoid the feeling of impurity or, or whatever's going on inside them that they feel doesn't measure up to this ideal? Um, cool? Discuss. So um, let's, you know, come back together. I feel like there's a conversation that, could go on for a while.
good conversation. Yeah, good. Uh, has anyone got anything that's come out of that that I'd like to share with the larger group? Anybody? You don't have to reveal your, you know, deep, dark secrets, but more what kind of conversation is, is coming up? What kind of thoughts, reflections? Yes, Elliot. Well, a group had a problem with the question because <laughs> you got your PhD or something, eh? Because that's a very double-ended, weird, curly question. Um, but the social consequence we thought were the, the exclusion of people we wanted to connect with because we're in, when unable, we, the impurity is a horrible word as well, so we thought maybe dishonest or inauthentic. So rather than living your authentic self, your whole self and all the bad stuff that God probably made and goes, oh yeah, I like that. You know that thing I did, I made you, so all the stuff I, that you bring, I like. Um, but if you go, oh no, he doesn't like quite a few things about me. So there's no way to connect to anyone outside of those things. So you're constantly lying to each other and the church doesn't feel full and whole and it diminishes what? That's what we got to. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I use the language of impurity in the question intentionally, not because um, I think that's the language we should use about ourselves, but that's the language many people have inherited to to, to think about. But yes, um, there are these implications for then the way in which we behave in community. Anybody else? Thank you, Elliot. Dietrich. Sorry, you're good, yeah. Um, So we had an interesting chat uh, and um, I just learned uh, a Korean phrase called show window and it's the idea of uh, like having a show window marriage or like a show window family and it's the putting up the front of something but not being willing to engage with what's really going down. Um, so similar sentiments, uh, what everyone else has said. <laughs> Anybody else? Anyone? Andrew wants to say something. Uh, I think it just we just you end up with a whole lot of people who are full of shame, and shame has like heaps of negative consequences. You know, addictions and. And and loneliness and all that, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, thank you. Uh, I want to make a couple of observations that I think of, um, which are kind of related to, a, I think, a lot of what you're saying as well. Um, I think this idea of show show window was it or which is similar to what's kind of going on in these conversations, does generate this real anxiety, I think, in a lot of people because it's actually a lot of work feeling like you could be exposed at any moment. Um, And so that feeling is kind of terrifying and you have to work pretty hard to avoid that feeling or to avoid that exposure. Um, And so when that's just hovering kind of over the back corner slightly, whether it's over something small or something large or whatever it might be. Um, you know, I, I know a few people who work in youth ministry and the number of people that they work with who maybe, you know, get pregnant but will still deny that they actually um, slept with anyone. Um, it just somehow happened, you know. Um, because it's easier to try and 
pretend that it is an immaculate conception than to acknowledge that they have done something that's frowned upon by the community in some kind of way, right? Um, right, anyway. I think sometimes it comes out as anger. Um, the kind of the... I remember in the... In the mid-90s, there was a Christian political party that got formed. They were always good. Um, and there was a couple, actually. There was... Uh, Christian Democrats and the Christian Heritage Party, and then they joined, I think they joined together. Anyway, and one of the leaders of these parties was a very aggressive moral campaigner, always very angry about the moral degradation of New Zealand society and of all of the things that were going on. And then inevitably, it seems to be the case when that's the kind of manifestation of people's righteous anger, it turns out that he was, you know, involved in all sorts of indecent assaults of young women um, and ended up in jail. And that to me is like a, that's a bad, obviously, social consequence. Um, but often that anger that gets projected out is an indication of this unease with oneself for all sorts of reasons. Um, and... So this kind of Christians as moral police of the world, this kind of angry, angry kind of you must, um, you must behave mentality can come from a very unhealthy place sometimes. Um, I think we could all, I mean, if we really wanted to, you know, go back into our chat from a couple of weeks ago and to go into some of the real dark aspects of our own religious history to see the way in which, you know, religious communities are, are capable of committing, of scapegoating and committing genocide against other groups um, as a way of trying to deal, I think, with their own internalised um, feelings. Um, but I f as I reflect on uh, the story of Jesus, I think a big part of what the invitation is, is to come to terms with who we are and as we are, not as um, some kind of pure magical being that is different to our actual experience. Um, and God is not worried about getting contaminated. There's this notion of holiness about God that I think is incredibly damaging, which is that which which is prevalent in a lot of evangelical Christianity, which is if God is holy, then he can't be around anybody who's who's um, a sinner, essentially. Can't be a, can't tolerate sin because God is holy. Um, and that's why Jesus needed to die so that um, he could make a way for God to be with us um, even though we're sinners and shouldn't be in God's presence. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, we're able to come into contact with God, which still means that God's holiness is very much defined as a thing that we really should not be in the presence of. But because of Jesus, we can be. Um, but actually, God doesn't seem particularly worried about getting contaminated, I don't think. Uh, certainly not the God revealed in Jesus. If Jesus is our best indication of what God is like, which is what the New Testament authors keep saying, he's the image of the invisible God, he's the exact representation of his being, uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, all of this language over and over again, that Jesus is our best example of, of what God is like, then Jesus is the one who gets accused of eating with all the sinners all the time. 
Uh, so I don't think God is particularly worried about getting pulled off his chair. Um, and so um, I still feel that there is this beautiful, radical naming of grace that is in the Christian uh, gospel, which is this bestowing of grace and dignity upon us to say that God, uh, God's love is for us and toward us and draws us in uh, and names us as loved. Not because God is doing that to sort of get around his own justice system, but because that's actually what God is like and who God is. Uh, and I feel like that's good news. You all right, Dietrich? Yeah, okay. Oh, that was a that was that was one of those. Um. Okay. Another observation, and then we'll have another question before we finish, um, or a couple of observations, to be to be honest. Um, one of the things I feel like Christian community in particular is about is about embracing this idea of love that we see in Jesus. I feel like there's a lot of la- there is a lot of language of, of inclusion going on in the world at the moment, uh, and I think that's a beautiful and good thing. One thing I have noticed is that sometimes the language of inclusion can become quite angry quite quickly. And so the language of we must include and we must do this and we must do that starts to take on a, a quite an um, volatile tone to it, a volatile kind of conversation. Um, and so, oh, you're not being in the inclusive in exactly the right kind of way and you shouldn't have said that or done that. And uh, there's a shaming, there's a public shaming that goes on in that conversation quite often in wider society. If you ever go on Twitter, you shouldn't probably because all it is is just people shaming each other um, and occasionally people posting hilarious or great things. But um, there's this there's this trying to attempt to forge inclusiveness, but I feel like sometimes, not always, but sometimes it misses this profound ingredient to it, which is the idea that this is for, for Christians at least, is to be shaped by the kind of love that we see in Jesus so that all of this action is an expression of self-giving and drawing in love rather than trying to include on some kind of crusade. Does that make sense? Oh, good. Um, And I think we we talked last time about how the first two or three centuries of the church, before they became the empire, were very much shaped by this very uh, inclusive drawing in kind of community, whether they were slaves or poor or women or... uh, all the people who were commonly excluded from Greco-Roman society or shunned or pushed to the bottom were drawn into these communities, um, which I'm sure had all sorts of problems, uh, but also seemed to hold to this notion that what God's love looked like in community was a reaching across these, these um, levels that you call it a caste system, I guess, which, which it really was a form of. Um, okay, one or two more things. <laughs> uh, there's lots of metaphors in the Bible for the kind of things that God does in our lives. And sometimes if we attach to them too strongly, they can shift from being helpful to unhelpful. Uh, because a metaphor usually functions within a range of metaphors that get used, but sometimes we latch onto someone in particular and then they become the one 
that we used. It was interesting. Um, when I was doing my PhD, I interviewed a number of people um, who were Maori and were in relation to Christianity and the church and, and some of the stuff that, where those things intersect. And I just want to share you a quote from somebody. Um, in relation to the text where we're washed as white as snow, which is a, a text in scripture. And they said this in the interview that I had with them. You know, there's a sense that if it's white, it's washed white as snow, so it's clean and lovely if you're a white person. That's what I've noticed about a lot of the attitudes that Māori people have. And so because they are brown and some of them are dark brown and some of them light brown like me, but that whole dark thing, I believe that it's kind of tinted the way people have looked at other people. Um, this interesting experience of being washed white as snow, which um, for them held these social implications of does that mean I because I can't be washed white, does that mean somehow I am unclean in some kind of way? Um, which would say something probably about their experience of the way in which that metaphor has been used within their spirituality and within their experience of church life. Yeah? Okay. Um... So the last thing I want to focus in on is that when we think about this idea of metaphors and stuff, there are particular things that really get attached to the purity, contamination, shame set of language. And sex and sexuality in particular is one that very much gets attached to that kind of language. Um, so, for example, if you catch someone stealing... You don't usually say, oh, they've lost their purity. But if somebody um, loses their virginity when they weren't supposed to, they've lost their purity, right? Now, the fact that that's when we'll use that language has some real implications for the way in which people experience uh, the social and internal personal implications of that kind of transgression, if that transgresses what's deemed to be the holy activity within the community, right? Does that make sense? Yeah? Um, and I think it's important for us to talk about that because, again, this stuff has personal implications, but it also then has social implications for how we relate to the world around us. Um, when we, So the sex and sexuality in particular is shaped very much by this kind of purity discourse, which, remembering, triggers a kind of disgust and shame reflex at a psychological level that's not always rational. Uh, so I think about the way in which the church has responded, for example, to the LGBT community. Um, for me, when I observe that, and even when I observe my own sort of growing up immersed within religious community, um, when you observe the church's kind of language in relation to that, it's often shaped by... Um, though they might not use it, shaped by disgust language because it's also shaped by purity language. Um, there was some work done in Australia where people were asked if they were shown that the Bible, or in fact, if, if the Bible was different to the one that they had and actually for them, for, these are for people who held a, to a conservative stance on same-sex relationships. Uh, if the Bible uh, affir clearly affirmed same-sex relationships, would you then be okay with it? And they still said no. Um, because what's going on is not a logical, rational thing. It's a psychological, um, pure, impure 
disgust reflex thing, actually. And so when you hear a lot of people, for example, talk about that stuff, they will often use disgust kind of language um, in relation to that community. Does that make sense? Um, and I think it's deeply unhealthy and has shaped a very bad way of having that conversation and thinking about people who are loved by God and should be drawn into community rather than repelled out of it. Um, so that's one thing I want to say about that. Uh, I also think about um, if purity is um, what we call, we call it um, uh, dose insensitive, uh, you think about, in particular, and this kind of language gets used around sex and sexuality a lot, then you think about somebody who has, in some way, however big or small, transgressed something of some kind of line they feel they've crossed. Um, this kind of, something is lost that they can never get back because if they've been made impure, then how do you get made pure again? You can't pretend the cockroach was never in the juice, right? If that's the kind of triggering that's going on in people's language, even the language of, um, and I'm just, I'm just pushing some conversations, seeing where we go, implications. Um, you know, if you've been made impure in some kind of way, how do, you, how do you get that back then? What does that mean for somebody's experience now of God and of community and of one another? Um, and so the kind of the internalized shame, and often people will talk about being repulsed by themselves. You know, they are they are, they are they're disgusted by their own self because of the way in which that stuff is kind of internalized and pushed down. And so over time, that can become incredibly unhealthy as a way of being in community with other people. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Um, and so I want to suggest that. That, that language is not always the most helpful. That, that purity language, in fact, is not necessary. If we think about purity as never um, making the wrong choice or taking the wrong step or looking at the wrong thing, uh, if that's the way we define purity, then purity is the wrong kind of language to use in relation to that aspect of people's lives because I don't think you're going to find a pure person which means that everybody then feels impure in some kind of way, uh, which can be really, really devastating and damaging and then project out in all sorts of social ways into the way in which people relate to the world beyond the church as well. Is that, yeah, yeah, you're all right. Um, so let's ask this question and then we'll, be, then we'll be done for today. That was a long pause. Just trying to think if I wanted to say anything else about that or if I had failed to mention something. Um, so let's have a, a think about this kind of question. If holiness is defined by a Jesus kind of love, uh, rather than exclusion primarily, then what are the implications for a, for a church community? Cool? So discuss and then we'll... Uh, okay, we'll um, draw ourselves back together again. And um, hopefully we can continue some of these conversations over some dinner. Either that or you'll be like, no, let's talk about something light over dinner. 
uh, Andrew and I. Should I should I talk about that conversation? Yeah, I should. Um, we were just having a little conversation about the um, concept uh, of virginity before. Uh, should we have that conversation? Just a little bit. I'm. Yeah. <laughs> um, which. Um, which is to say that uh, the language of um, virginity, which really did emerge in relation to um, acquiring a bride who is pure uh, as a part of you know your property uh, that hasn't been dishonoured by somebody else, and therefore the idea of virginity was very very you know was def- was shaped by that kind of conversation. Uh, is this person has this person uh, been tainted by somebody else? In which case, then I am dishonoured as a man. Of course, very. It's great, um, and it's again very binary language, which is something you have or you lose. Uh, you are or you aren't, um, and not always particularly helpful language actually for people. Uh, that is not to say. We shouldn't be having conversations of what does healthy sexuality look like and how do we make wise choices about lives that are grounded in love and commitment and self-giving and all of that kind of stuff. But when they're shaped particularly by a certain kind of discourse that can be very all or nothing, then especially for people for whom maybe some decision at some point in their life now deems them as someone who's lost this thing that they can never get back. Um, when the thing itself is is maybe not most helpfully defined in that kind of way. I think that's an interesting conversation for us to reflect on as a Christian community. How do we have better kinds of conversations about, um, about our sexuality in that sense? That's one thing to offer. That was Andrew and I's conversation, eh? Yeah. yeah I would say, like, it's a word that... The word is a bad word, yeah. It's just a word. It's lost. It's was developed um, a long time ago in a terrible context, and I think we shouldn't use it anymore. Yeah, that's me. Thanks. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Anybody else want to share anything that might be different to that? Um, out of the conversations you guys are having or any questions that bounce off that? Um, I mean, this is a, like a safe space to have conversation, right? To discuss some of this stuff. So we're not going to kick anyone out for saying the wrong thing unless it's wrong, in which case you'll be out of here. But um, what I was thinking is that um, it feels kind of not so safe anymore um, if everything um, is Jesus' kind of love because the idea is that um, if you are loved by Jesus, you are loved by God, and the love of God is so all-encompassing, so welcoming, you're welcome in this, but you're also put under the spotlight. So you cannot have it both ways. You cannot uh, be welcome and stay in the light and not see uh, what you have to deal with and what's, uh, what's hard for you to deal with. And so it would require a tremendous lot of courage to, to stay in this spotlight and to embody this spotlight. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not as safe as creating a dogma and, and staying in it with a very clear defined rules. And 
So yeah, Jesus kind of love means work out hard. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Cool. Are we are we just talking about the Jesus kind of love was the third way, so it was refusing to accept a binary, the right and wrong, in or out, purity, pure and pure. Hol as the Yes. But as a, as the directional way that Jesus showed love Linda said love was a verb this morning. So we have to do love, not Love is, you can't have it, have it, you have to do it. So the th that third way of, which is immensely frustrating because there's no, what's the third way of, what's, what's between impurity and purity? Like, whatever that thing is, we've got to, we're doing that thing. We've got to live in that weird space between the right and the wrong and then I'll go live there. I don't know what that is. <laughs> but that's where Jesus was going, oh, there we go, I'm doing that thing. And that's why everyone got angry with him because no one could define it, surely. Just a thought. Okay. Cool. Thank you. I think. Um, huh? I would do more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that is upsetting about Jesus is his refusal to set the system and then for everyone to just go, right, okay, that's the system. Cool. Um, Oh yes, we're good at developing the system and, yeah. and saying it's a Jesus system. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Paul uses this phrase. You know, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, right? To, to say, how could we be a part of a community where we make wise choices that lead to human flourishing, rather than trying to make choices that stop us from getting in the wrong group? You know. Um, Yes, Dietrich. Hello. Hello again. Just, I mean, just, oh, well, it's just off of um, the, we're kind of where we're currently at in the in the conversation. I think that's cool, but at the same time, I'm thinking about people who might be like children, and you do need that binary way of thinking if you're a child, but then also if you're new to faith you kind of do need the binary way of thinking because otherwise, where do you start? You're just left to relativism, essentially, because then it's just a big, uh, excuse my language, cesspool of whatever I feel like because I haven't been exemplified what, what a starting point looks like. So... I mean, all good if you, you're walking with the Lord and you know Jesus and you can spout off a whole bunch of scripture. Not so much if you're kind of like, oh, yeah, who's Jesus? <laughs> like, well, I don't get it. You know, just a thought. Yeah, interesting. Um, there's a whole lot of work done looking at the way in which often our faith journey mirrors the process of psychosocial development. So as a child who grows through these phases of yes, often binary thing and very concrete and then very concrete thinking and then authority which is always external. And then you get to that point in life where that authority has to move from that authority figure out there to actually becoming this internalized thing of what do I actually now believe is uh, the right course of action. 
and, and how that's the process of growing into an adult person. Um, and then in some sense, our faith journey often goes along that kind of path as well. Uh, I think just what's happened for a lot of people so is that the, the faith journey gets truncated. Uh, and there's a whole lot of research that looks at this at the point where the authority is still that external figure who says this is the rules and this is the system. And then often what religious institutions can do is essentially just camp around that um, rather than helping people to continue to grow into some kind of um, wisdom and maturity in their own journey. So, yeah, I, I think, um, but I think that's an important reflection. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, the reason I find this, you know, pl takes this conversation fits within this. Uh, you thought I was going to finish, eh? Well, I didn't. Oh, you did. <laughs> uh, no, this is my sum up. This is my, uh, you know, this is this is drawing it to a close. Uh, this fits within this conversation that we're having about uh, because I see this is a big part of how we define what it means to be a church community. Because I think our challenge is that this is not just what do I feel then but is for us as community, as a church community in this case, as a Christian community, to say, how does Jesus point towards the kind of life and love and values that we want to actually live out in the world? And I see that's what's going on in a lot of the New Testament, what Paul's trying to do. And lots of his letters, for example, are saying, this is Jesus, and so therefore uh, we should probably do these kinds of things. And um, we've tended to then go, oh, right, Paul, okay, now Paul's given us the system. That's good, because Jesus was a bit fuzzy, but Paul sort of sorted it all out for us. Uh, rather than being like, we've got to do the same thing that Paul did, I think, which is to say, here's the story of Jesus. How does this help us make sense of the way we are in the world? Um, and my hope is that as, as, as a church, um, that that would help to shape a way of being in the world which is not just driven by this um, internalised kind of shame and anxiety and this externalised pushing and repelling of people away who are deemed somehow not to be a part of things. So um, that's enough for tonight. Cool? All right, I'm going to say a prayer and then Clint might have some, just a couple of things and then we'll have some quite. All right. God, we thank you that you are somehow present in our conversation and in the things that we're sharing and saying and in our questions and in our searching. And maybe we've touched on a few things that we might still not quite know what to do with them or what the right way to language them is. And yet I thank you that we are grounded in you and we are grounded in this experience we've had of Christ in us and among us. Would you shape us? Would you help us to be people who discover what it is to love and to reach beyond some of the borders and hard lines that we tend to draw? Um, would you help us to be those kinds of people for one another, for ourselves, for those of us who do have these deep uh, senses of 
maybe anxiety or shame or whatever it might be, would we just hear your uh, word again to us, which is grace and which extends love and draws us in. Amen.